If you got your Bible here this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me once again to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 14. By my count, I think we've got about three or four Sundays left uh, in our study that we've been undertaking this summer. Uh, we've come to the last of the Judges, Samson, so I'm going to be faithful to uh, finish out the conclusion of his life. We're in Judges 14 today, and I want to talk to you this morning about the Samson Syndrome. A few years ago, in 2015, there was an art gallery in Sarasota Springs, Florida, that tried a social experiment. For a few days, they placed an acoustic piano out on the sidewalk of a street to see if anyone walking by would stop, sit, and play. The idea was to encourage spontaneous moments of music and beauty and interaction. And nobody expected that a 51-year-old homeless man named Donald Gould would wow the passers-by with his ability to tickle the ivories. And for a few sublime minutes, people were mesmerized by this penniless piano prodigy. Gould performed masterfully as if he were before a packed Radio City Music Hall in New York. Meanwhile, there was somebody who captured his performance on a smartphone, later uploaded the video to YouTube, and in just a matter of hours, the crude video went viral. Now, I could tell you all about it, but i really like to show you. And if I get our media team to queue up that video, uh, can you show the audience about 30 seconds? There you go. Those of you children of the 80s, you probably recognize that tune was from Sticks. <laughs> but nonetheless, that video topped 15 million views in just a matter of hours. People were curious. They wanted to know the rest of the story. What was it about Donald Gould, this piano concerto, this virtuoso? How did he end up living on the streets, on the gutters of Sarasota Springs as a homeless person? Well, some of the local news tracked him down. They interviewed him, and here's what they found out about his life. Listen to this. Like so many gifted people, Gould started out with high hopes. He told the media that at one time in his life, he played clarinet for the U.S. Marine Corps Band. And you know you have to be tip-top to play with them. He later studied music education. But just three semesters shy of his graduation, he ran into financial trouble, and he could no longer pay his tuition. He became disillusioned and depressed. He turned, like so many do, to drugs and alcohol. He became an addict. His life fell apart. His wife committed suicide. His three-year-old son, whom he could no longer take care of, was taken by social services. And Donald Gould, this talented, gifted man, ended up living on the streets only with broken dreams, a wasted opportunity, and the haunting specter of what might have been been. What a story. 
We'll hear more about him later on. But I begin the message today because I believe that that is an example of what I'm talking about when I say the Samson Syndrome. What is that? Well, that's when someone of obvious giftedness doesn't reach their full potential because of a series of bad choices or tragic circumstances that end up derailing their dreams and sabotaging their purpose. And as we study Samson, I've told you already, it's really a study in coming to terms with one of the greatest contradictions in the Bible. This man will amaze you with his flashes of athleticism, his brawn and his strength, but yet he will also disappoint you with his sinful lifestyle, with his womanizing, his pride, his violence, his foolishness. He is a great puzzling mystery in the characters we see of the Bible. One commentator many years ago wrote this insightful comparison of Samson and Moses. Now look at this. Moses and Samson, what a contrast in their strength, vocation, talent, character, and destiny. Moses learned in all the ways of Egypt, the other a man of brawn, up to all the tricks and sport of a giant. Moses' life was a long epic. Samson's life, a brief tragedy. Moses was a man of God. Samson, a man of the people. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. Samson gave us a riddle. We'll see one of those today. Moses lived 120 years, founded a nation, and his laws remained their legacy for 30 centuries. But Samson's brief career ended in catastrophe without permanent success or memorial. So different are these two men, yet one thing they had in common. The same faith, but not the same faithfulness. What an interesting contrast. In Judges 14, we see Samson has now grown up into adulthood. And we learn very quickly the kind of man that he has become. For lack of a better word, he's a loose cannon. You're going to notice a critical phrase that's repeated five times in this chapter as we read through it. You'll see it in verse 1, verse 5, verse 7, verse 10, and verse 19. And it's this little phrase, He went down. Now, this is primarily a geographical description, but it really carries a deeper significance. Because here is Samson with a high calling to be the deliverer and to be the judge of God's people, a lifelong Nazarite. And yet, as you track his life through this chapter, the direction morally and spiritually of his life is going down. This Old Testament he-man did not live up to his godly calling. And in this message, we're going to diagnose a condition known as the Samson Syndrome. There are four symptoms that we're going to see this morning. And as we look at this problem, you're going to have to be honest with yourself. And if you are, you'll admit you're a lot like Samson in many of these ways. So let's evaluate our spiritual walk today as we talk about the Samson syndrome. The number one symptom that I see here in this diagnosis is, number one, Samson was controlled by his passions. He was controlled by his passions. Look in verse 1 as we read, Samson went down to Timnah. By the way, Timnah was a Philistine city, a place he should not have gone. And at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get 
her for me as my wife. Remember, in these days, their marriages were arranged. So they went through the father and the mother. Verse 3, But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all of our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Verse 4, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And at that time the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, as we read our text this morning right off the bat, you see Samson, a man who is governed, controlled by his passions. Here's a man driven by high levels of testosterone, more so than the Spirit of the Lord. He's a womanizer. He has a weakness for foreign women, just as the nation of Israel at large at this time has a weakness for the foreign gods. So really what's happening in Samson's life is a small picture of really what's going on in a large picture of the whole nation. But by courting this Philistine gal, Samson is not only breaking the law of the Lord according to Deuteronomy 7, the Israelites were not to intermarry with other tribes. So by going after this pagan woman, he's flirting with Israel's enemy and he's on the verge of breaking his own Nazarite vow. Now Samson goes to his family, we read there verses 2 and 3, goes to his mom and dad, and he pitches this idea of getting the Philistine girl for his wife, and as you read that, it goes over like a concrete balloon, doesn't it? Mr. and Miss Manoah are trying to reason with Samson, Hey Sam, what are you doing? Haven't you forgot about your calling, about who you're supposed to be? You can't marry this girl, surely. There's a nice girl from one of the other Israelite tribes that you'd be interested in. And as you read that, some of you parents who have been down that road, you know exactly how they felt at that moment because you've been there when your son or daughter brought in some kind of loser to date and potentially marry, and you tried to talk them out of it, but they wouldn't hear of it. Can I get a witness? You tried to talk them out of all the heartache, all the pain, and the threat of being unequally yoked. But how many of you know sometimes young people have to learn those lessons the hard way? Mom and dad don't know anything, do they? <laughs> Until you fall flat on your face and then you get some sense and you realize, you know, mama was right, daddy was right, the preacher was right, I should have listened to him. Now, as I read that story, I often thought about my own story. Nobody had to pass through more screenings and background checks than I did when I asked my father-in-law, Mark Rogers, for Caitlin's hand in marriage. You've probably heard that story. You just thought TSA was thorough when they go through the airport line and they scan your body and they grapple through your luggage and they do everything except for a cavity check. You thought TSA was thorough. I'm telling you, I had to go through the gauntlet. I've often joked that my exit exam from graduating seminary was not nearly as detailed as the vetting process I had to go through in order to have dear Caitlin's hand in marriage. Not only did I have to pass her 40-point checklist, but I had to stand before Dad, write that now infamous five-page essay, Why Are You Qualified to Take My Position? I had to pass a lie detector test, a drug test. Now I'm kidding about that other part. I'll stop right there. But it was a fine-tooth comb. I'm grateful, though, for a mom and a dad who cared. There's some moms and dads that don't care. 
and it shows. Now, verse 3 says it all, doesn't it? Samson's reasoning. She is right in my eyes. Did you see that, church? By the way, that's a major theme that runs all the way through the book of Judges. In fact, the final verse of the whole book, chapter 21, verse 25, there was no king in the land, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Is that not a description of America in 2021? We have a president, maybe by title only. You wonder, as I do, who's really running the country. There's no leaders in the land with backbone. He'll stand up and do what's right. And everybody's living according to what's right in their own eyes. God help us. That's the mantra of our insane, morally unhinged culture. I'm not hurting anybody. It seems right to me. But yet, friend, when you violate God's design and God's commands, you don't just break the law. The law of God breaks you, doesn't it? You break yourself upon it. And usually, friend, listen to me, what is culturally and politically right is usually not biblically and morally right. There is a difference. Because people say all the time, oh, everybody else is doing it. You can rationalize any kind of sin you want today and make it sound good in your mind. That's where Samson was. He's controlled by his passions. He's only thinking about what he wants in that moment. He's about to make a terrible decision based solely on what the Bible would call the lust of the eyes. I've made a mistake like that before, and so have you, because we're fallen creatures. But notice here also that Samson is about to rebel against his parents' good counsel. You know what the Bible says in the book of Proverbs 15 and verse 5? It says, A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Samson's about to go against that. By the way, while I'm on that, if Samson goes through with this marriage, he will be unequally yoked. You know, the Bible is very specific about that, that we're not to be unequally yoked. You're not have to, supposed to have a Christian marry a non-Christian. Do you know why? Adrian Rogers said it best years ago. He said, when a Christian marries a non-Christian, you get Satan as a father-in-law, and you get hell for a home. But I hear people say, oh, it's right in my eyes. It's okay. I can convert them. I can change him. We're in love. Doesn't God want me to be happy? It's right in my eyes. Samson was controlled by his passions. The second part of this diagnosis I want you to see, though, is that Samson was careless with his purity. Now, I'll be honest with you. This is a strange story. And it shouts out to us in many different ways. But look what it says in verse 5. The Bible says, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah. In other words, they're going down there to set up this marriage. And they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Now, I've never torn up a young goat. I don't really identify with that culturally, but what the Bible is telling us is that he, he tore this animal all to pieces. Then the Bible says, but he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Why? I'll answer that here in a moment. Verse 7, then he went down and talked with the woman, and here it is again. She was right in Samson's eyes. And after some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. 
And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it into his hands and went on, eating it as he went. And he came to his father and his mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, that violates a lot of our 21st century cultural principles there. But let me unpack this story and show you what's going on in Samson's life. Remember, I told you he was careless with his purity. This episode tells us a lot about Samson's contradictory character. Obviously, we're amazed on one hand of his Hulk-like power. I mean, here's a guy who's able to smack down a lion like it's a little kitty cat. And yet at the same time, as you read that story, you're disgusted, alarmed by his rebellious and deceptive spirit. In fact, as I read this story, for the first time it occurred to me that perhaps the lion who came out to attack him was a warning from God. God sent a warning to Samson to get him off the path that he was on. But friend, you know as well as I do, if you're hell-bent on going down the road of destruction, you'll find a way to detour around God's roadblocks, won't you? That's where Samson was. And his success after he defeats the lion turns into a snare when he comes back a few days later, passes through the vineyard, and he revisits the place of his battle. Why? To gloat over his victory. Let's go back and... And, and, and relive that experience again. So his sin begins with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, and now it's moved on, 1 John 2.16, to the pride of life. Now, what's the problem here with all of this? The Bible says that Samson took the honey from the carcass of the lion, ate it, and then gave it to his parents. You, you and I may see that as gross, but maybe not anything wrong with it, but you need to understand... Samson was called to walk as a Nazarite, right? He has a high and holy calling. And we looked at the Nazarite vow a couple weeks ago. By eating that honey, he has violated a third of his Nazarite covenant. Remember, there were three restrictions in that Nazarite vow. No drinking alcohol, which is interesting because he's passing through a vineyard, and you know where the wine comes from, don't you? No cutting of the hair, and watch this, no contact of the dead. That's why he doesn't tell his parents. That's why this scene, as we read it, is supposed to be scandalous to us because here's a guy who's violating his covenant and he doesn't really seem to care about it. He's not living the pure life that God called him to live. Now, as I read this story, there's a couple of things about the nature of sin that I want to point out to you. First off, I want you to see here the compounding effect of sin. Are you noticing that Samson's sin is getting bolder and bolder? And it'll get even worse once we get into chapters 15 and 16. But he's getting deeper into his sin. And not only is nothing stopping him from marrying the wrong girl, but now he's emboldened to such a point that he's willing to break his Nazarite vow and it doesn't even bother him. You ever been there before? In your walk? You go a few weeks missing church. You miss reading your Bible. Soon it ends up to the point where you're not even praying anymore. And you've moved so far from God, you're living in immorality, and you don't even care anymore. You're not taking your purity serious. You're not taking your walk with the Lord serious. Hey, guilty as charged. I've been there too. But that's where Samson is. He's on that slippery slope. 
as he's backsliding from the Lord. And you know what? Sin is kind of like a triple dog dare. Remember being dog dared on the playground? I dare you to, to jump off of that high place or I dare you to go pull Susie's pigtails or I triple dog dare you to take your tongue and stick it to that frozen flagpole. Anybody seen a Christmas story? Sin is kind of like a triple dog dare, isn't it? Because when you don't get caught the first time, you get dared to keep going a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further. Hey, you didn't get caught. Nothing happened to you. God didn't bring the boom down on you. So you can keep going down that road a little bit further. That's the way sin works, right? It compounds. It builds to the point to where your heart gets callous to where even you have no desire to hear the preaching of the Word of God. And if the Spirit of God has, gets a hold of you, you wrestle in front of the pew so you don't come to the front to repent of your sin. I've been there before. A hard heart. A rebellious spirit. That's where Samson was. I read this week a, a story about President John F. Kennedy. You know, we've had our fair share of leaders in this country with lust problems. John F. Kennedy and Samson had a lot in common in that they were promiscuous. There's a historian by the name of Thomas Reeves. He wrote an excellent bio on JFK. It was entitled, A Question of Character. But in the book... He wrote about how women went in and out of JFK's bed in such numbers that a lot of them, he didn't even remember their names. And he tells this story. Listen to this. One woman who resisted JFK's advances was interviewed. She asked the president point blank, why are you using women as playthings that you throw away? Why are you taking such risks when you might get caught in a scandal? Why are you living a double life? Here's what the author explained. JFK took a while to formulate an answer. Finally, he shrugged and said, I really don't know. I guess I can't help myself. And then the author explained, JFK spoke with those words with a sad expression on his face. He looked like a little boy about to cry. Sometimes there isn't a good explanation for the sin that lies within us or why we do the things that we do, save for the fact that Jeremiah 17, 9 is right. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's where Samson was in this syndrome of his. Billy Sunday, the old fiery evangelist, he said this, one reason why sin flourishes in our lives is that we treat it like a little lamb and not like a rattlesnake. We pet it. We coddle it. We rationalize it. We invite it into our lives. And we treat it as a, a plaything. You know what the old preachers used to say? Sin thrills before it kills. It fascinates before it assassinates. And with sin, you may get what you want, but you won't want what you get. Amen? When it's all said and done, you may get what you want in the moment, but at the end of the day, when sin has had its way, you won't want what you get. That's the compounding effect of sin. Then notice also what I've noted is the corrupting effect of sin. The Bible said that he took some of that honey and he ate it as he went. And then he took some to his mom and dad and said, here, try this. And he didn't tell them from whence it came. Friend, that's the corrupting effects of sin. And his parents were defiled because that 
food had come from a dead carcass. Not only was Samson defiled, but he defiled his mom and dad in the process. And friend, here's what I'm telling you. When you're living in that Samson syndrome, you become blind to the consequences of sin, and you don't care who you hurt in the process. Sin is kind of like secondhand smoke. It hurts the person with the cigarette the most, but it also does collateral damage to those nearby. You know, one of the greatest lies that the enemy has got people to believe about addiction? Oh, I'm not hurting anybody. It's okay. I'm only affecting me. Wrong. That's a lie from Satan. We ought to reject it because sin always, like a stone thrown in a pond, ripples out and touches the lives of other people. Sin always hurts others. It's not just an isolated incident. A lot of times what we will want to do, when we know we're not living right, we want to implicate others in our sin so we don't feel so bad about ourselves. So we can point and say, look, everybody else is doing it just like me. You're no different. That's the corrupting effect of sin. My goodness, how backslid is Samson. wish I could tell you that it gets better, but it gets worse. Notice as we go through the Samson syndrome, he's controlled by his passions. He's careless with his purity. Then notice number three, he's captive to his pride. He's captive to his pride. Look at what verses 10 and 11 say. And his father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, Put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, verse 14, Out of the eater came something to eat. And out of the strong came something sweet. He's talking about his victory that he just had over the line and getting the honey out of it. He's turned his sin into a game. Verse 14, And in three days they could not solve the riddle. So, the time for Samson's ill-advised wedding has arrived. And according to the traditions of the day, a wedding feast would last about seven days. And leading up to that last day where the husband and wife consummated that marriage, the culture of the day dictated that there was a lot of feasting and a lot of partying and celebration. And scholars, if you study the background of this passage, they are pretty confident that at a place like this, there would have been a lot of free-flowing wine. Now, the question we should ask is, what is Samson doing fraternizing with the enemy What is he doing marrying a girl that the Bible has forbidden? And what's he doing at a drinking party rubbing shoulders with people whom God has raised him up to deliver Israel from? He's violating his vow over and over again. And as the alcohol begins to take effect, these Philistine frat boys, if you will, they start to let their hair down. And in between the beer pong and the keg stand, Samson says, Hey, i got a good one for you guys. Here's a little riddle for you. And we read about the riddle there, verses 12 through 14. And he concocts this bet with these Philistine drinking buddies. And he says, hey, if you can solve this riddle, 
I'll give you 30 changes of clothes. But if you can't, you got a week to do it, you got to pay me in return. Now think about this. Think of how prideful Samson has become. He knows he's got the anointing of God. He's got the power of God. If he gets into a jam, he's, the, he's expecting that the Spirit of God will rush upon him just like it did of the lion, and he can take the enemy down. But he's so inflated with his ego and his pride while the only thing bigger than his biceps is his ego at this moment. He thinks he's untouchable. He's turned his sin into a game. He's playing a riddle with the enemy. And friend, don't you know that when you play games with the devil, he always rigs the game so that you lose. <laughs> Samson's blind. He can't see it. And this is where his strength becomes a weakness. Because the Bible says, if anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. It's been said, you probably heard it, pride is like bad breath. Everybody knows that you have it except you. Isn't that true? And Samson reeks of it in this moment, and so do a lot of powerful people in the world. You probably remember me telling that old story about Muhammad Ali being on the airplane. You remember that story? where Muhammad Ali is sitting on the airplane and the stewardess comes by and says, Mr. Ali, uh, it's time for us to take off. You need to put your seatbelt on. And he grumbled about it. Stewardess went away, came back, asked him again, Mr. Ali, the rules of the plane are you got to have your seatbelt on or we can't take off. He uh, hemmed and hauled around, grumbled, grumbled about it. The stewardess went away. She came back a third time. He said, and she got real adamant with him and said, Mr. Ali, if you don't put your seatbelt on, we can't take off. And Muhammad Ali, in his brashness and in his pride, he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the little stewardess looked back at him and said, And Superman don't need no airplane neither. <laughs> you see, what, what kryptonite was to Superman... Pride is to Samson and to us. Now these Philistines, Samson didn't know really who he was dealing with. He might as well just been dealing with Tony Soprano. These guys are not afraid to use mafia-like tactics to get what they want. So they, they corner his bride to be and look, verse 15, at what the Bible says. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You don't love me. You put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father and my mother, and, I sh and shall I tell you? This is the tactic that always works. My daughter is very good at this. She wept before him. A lot of strong dads out there, but they can't take it when daughter starts to cry. She wept before him, and seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard, and then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Wow, I guess he didn't think very highly of the girl he was about to marry. Pro tip for marriage, guys, don't ever refer to your wife as a heifer. Could not. What is wrong with Samson? 
you're going to live in sin, you better be tough because that's really stupid. But Samson's foolish game is blown up. His pride becomes wounded. And I wonder, how many of us today would admit you've been in that place where Samson is? Maybe you feel like you're untouchable. Maybe you feel like, hey, I can do what I want and you can ride high on pride. But let me tell you something, your day is coming. Proverbs 6, the Bible says that pride is the chief sin that God hates. And in James 4, 6, the Bible says that God resists the proud. Make no mistake about it, those who don't humble themselves before God will be humbled by God. And friend, I would rather bow my knee to God in humility than be forced to bow before Him in humiliation. It's a lot of prideful men out there just like Samson who think, I don't need preaching. I don't need church. I don't need the Bible. I wish my wife would quit nagging me about going to the house of God. They're so prideful. Because they think that their bank account, their hard work, and oh, I'm a good husband is going to be acceptable when they stand before a holy God one day and He says, depart from me, you work of iniquity. I never knew you. The one sin that's going to send a lot of people into a devil's hell is the sin of pride. I don't need God. I'll make it on my own. I'm good enough without God. Preacher, I'll take my chances. I'm telling you, that's a dangerous path to go down. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. That's where where Samson is in this Samson syndrome. He's controlled by his passions. He's careless with his purity He's captive to his pride. And then notice the last two verses of the chapter, and I'm done today. He's conceited with his power. Conceited with his power. Look, verse 19. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, and struck down 30 men of the town, and took their spoil, and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle, In hot anger, he went back to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. You just thought watching soap operas and Netflix was interesting. It's right here in the Word of God. What a strange story. But if anybody needs a crash course in anger management, it's Samson. And how many of you know that the world will know more about your heart, not from your anger, actions necessarily but from your reactions and Samson here in this moment when the plot blows up and he has to pay up those 30 garments he uses his power given by God to serve himself the Bible says he goes to a neighboring town of the Philistines and he kills the guys and stacks the bodies takes their clothes and brings it back to pay off his debt he's so mad he doesn't even marry the girl that he thought he loved it wasn't love it was lust what a mess this guy Samson is and really and truly as you look at this passage there's not much good that we can say about him after all he ends up using that strength that God gave him to fulfill his selfish purposes 
God's called him to be the deliverer of his people. And so far, he's only used that power to fight his own battles. And that's the ultimate deception of sin, isn't it? When we take the good things that God has given us, the blessings that God has provided for us, we don't give Him thanks, and we turn those things inward, and we spend it on ourselves in our own trivial pursuits rather than being a blessing and bringing glory and honor to God. And when we do that, that's the Samson syndrome. You take the gifts that God has given you, and you waste them, and you don't fulfill the potential that God had laid out for your life. I'm going to ask you to be truthful. What about you? Are you handicapped by your own sinful choices? Are you fueling your life by pride? Are you living by your passions? Are you pursuing purity? If the answer in that regard is convicting to you, then what you do in the Samson syndrome is you sabotage yourself and the effectiveness you can have in God's kingdom. But there is one little silver lining in all this. You say, preacher, give me some hope. Here it is. Verse 4. Did you read it? Go back and look at it real quickly as I close and I'm done. It, the Bible says there in verse 4, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord... For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Did you see that? A subtle hint that even in Samson's weakness, even in Samson's failures, that God was going to use his life and his situation. He had no business marrying a Philistine woman. He had no business um, fraternizing with the enemy. He had no business polluting his family in that. But you know what? As you look at all that, what did God do in Samson's life in that episode? God wrecked his plans. How many of you can thank God today for him wrecking your plans? There's a blessing in that. When you think you've got it all figured out, when you lay out a plan in your life and you say, this is right in my eyes, and you go after it, and you find out after you get a mouthful of it, it is like eating ashes. And you can only say, Maybe this wasn't the direction I was supposed to go because, friend, God will wreck your plans when He sees that your plans are about to wreck you. And in that is the mercy and the grace of God in all of that. Because if Samson would have went through with his plans, he would have subverted the great purpose that God had for his life. And so here's what this passage is telling us. Samson was a broken Savior. But yet God used him in spite of his flaws to accomplish his plan in his life. And when you go to Hebrews 11, there is Samson's name in the hall of faith. You see, God's ultimate purpose with Samson was to stir up conflict with the Philistines so that Samson would fight against them and that he would free Israel from their bondage. And aren't you glad today that God can write with a crooked stick and He took broken Samson and weak Samson, messed up as he was, and He used him for that purpose to begin to deliver Israel. And that's what... That's God's grace. 
How gracious is God that He can do the same thing in your life and in my life. He can take the ugly and the brokenness and the messed up past and God by His mercy and His grace, He can redeem that and say, you're not completely broken. You're not completely uh, hopeless. I can take that. I can use it. I can restore it. I can still get glory out of it. I can still save it. And I can take a negative and turn it into a positive. Because Romans 8.28 is still in the book that God can work all things together for good. Isn't that what God did at the cross? He took the wickedness and the evil choices of sinful men and yet He worked that into a plan where the wicked evil choices of men ended up putting Jesus on the cross and it's through the death of the cross that we can have salvation and mercy and grace today and the river of life is flowing if you'll just take a, a drought in it. Uh, God can save you. God can cleanse you. And if God can use evil to bring about good, friend, He can do that in your life and in my life. He accomplishes a greater purpose. Remember that homeless fella who was playing piano on the side of the street? And everybody wondered, how did this guy, this amazing gift, Donald Gould, how did he end up like Samson? Eating out of the gutter. Here's what happened in his life. He was extremely gifted, but his talent was squandered until providence came bursting through in his life. This is the way God works. The video of him playing piano on the street went viral across the internet. People learned about his backstory. They were moved with compassion to start a GoFundMe page for Donald Gould. And listen to this, it raised over $50,000 for him to get his life back on track. One of the first things Donald Gould did was he enrolled himself in a rehab program to kick his drug addiction. Then when he was in rehab, his son, whom he had lost track of, saw the video and found his dad and they began to put their relationship back together again. Then doors started to open for him as he got clean in his life. He got invitations to go play the piano, even play the national anthem at a Monday night football game in San Francisco. And through the influence of his drug rehab counselor, he had an experience of Jesus Christ. And in fact, he put together an album of his musicianship. And one of the songs on his album is, Just Give Me Jesus. Thank God! We serve a second chance God. Thank God that uh, He can work through our brokenness and work through our sinfulness and bring a good thing out of a broken, messed up life. By the way, the people who suffer from the Samson syndrome, that's the kind of people that Jesus died for. And that's the mercy and grace that He wants to give to you and to me. And as our musicians are coming and as we're thinking about an invitation today, I wonder, is there anybody today who needs to respond to that message? And you say, I've, I've messed up, preacher. I, I've made a wreck of my life. And I, I need Christ to intervene in my life. I need a second chance. I need a dose of amazing grace. Or maybe you're not even saved today. You don't know Jesus personally. Maybe you're like Samson. You're just playing games. Not real serious about serving God. Hey, 
today can be a, a turning point for you. And the altar will be open and I'll meet you down here. We'll pray and we'll get it right, friend. We'll humble ourselves before the Lord. 